Hey, 26 West. Let's try that one more time. Good to see you guys. How are you? Yeah, man. Man, such a great group. I got to say, I just have so much love for you guys. I got, man, Jose, your pastor is greeting you from a video in Uganda. That is so cool. Oh, man, you've got a cool pastor. I kind of am a little bit envious, if I can be quite honest. Um, man, I, I got to say, I got a lot of love for Hillsboro because I grew up here. Um, this is my hometown. And um, like my dad worked right across the street over there at Intel. Anybody else here work at Intel? A good handful of you guys. Okay, right on. What about uh, Liberty High School? Anybody go to Liberty? Yes, come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I graduated from Liberty in 06. So, man, this is like coming home, and I absolutely love it. Also, I just have a ton of love for you guys here at 26 West. Um, you guys have been such an amazing partner for us as a church. Like Jose said, we planted a Riverbend Church um, not too long ago, uh, about almost two years ago now. So I guess it has been a little bit of time. But um, we planted Riverbend. You guys have been a partner since day one. Jose is like a fantastic friend, mentor. He's been so great. You know, when you're church planning, you got all kinds of decisions you're making all the time. And um, I would call Jose quite often just out of the blue and say, hey, what would you do here? What would you do there? And he always gave such great council. So he's awesome. Also, you guys, maybe you don't even know, you've been super generous to Riverbend Church. Um, a couple different times during our first year, you gave us really substantial gifts that kind of helped get us off the ground. Church planning takes some money and you guys helped us get there, get off the ground. So thanks for that. Brandon, your guys' worship pastor, he comes over and leads worship every now and again. So that's great. So good. Um, and you guys, another thing you guys have that, that no other church in the world has is a family named Steve and Vicki Marshman, the Marshman family. You guys know them, right? They are fantastic. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, what they're going through right now, they had me over for dinner last night, and I just love their hospitality. They're fantastic people. Um, but what they've been going through over the last couple of years and how they've weathered the storm and just like served the Lord and stayed faithful to him during it, it's just it's so inspiring to me. And I think it's such a great gift for you guys that you would have such incredible leaders here like them. Um, so... 26 West is a special place. And I'm actually, I'm, I've been, as I've been thinking about it, um, it feels like you guys are almost like hoarding all of the good leaders. You need to like, you mean you got, you got the Marshmans, you've got the Ballards, you've got the Mosers, you've got the Kopishes, you've got Nate and Hannah and Lonnie and Hakeem. You've got all these fantastic leaders. You guys need to share the love, man. Um, uh, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is that when your church does a series called Learning to Lead, I think the rest of us really need to pay attention because you guys have some fantastic leaders. Um, Carmen and Jose, for example, I think are some of the most effortless, just excellent leaders uh, in the church. And in fact, I, I don't know if I know anyone better, which is why I think you all needed to bring me in because I don't have that same problem. I am a work in progress, to put it mildly. Uh, and so what I want to share for you today is a paradigm from the scriptures about how you lead from your brokenness and from your weaknesses. Um, and I'm going to also hopefully have a chance to share with you a little bit about my own story and some of my weaknesses and what God is doing through them. So for those of you who have been sitting through this series, Learning to Lead, uh, thinking, wow, man, this is some great stuff. Yeah, I get it. Every uh, person who's in the kingdom of God is a leader. Yeah, I'm on board with that. But how do I, how can I lead someone else when I have so much room to grow myself, right? 
And I think that's a question that a lot of us ask, and I know that I've asked that before. So first of all, if that's you, you're my kind of people. So come up and say hi after the gathering. I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Second of all, I'd also say that the perfect leader is an illusion, except for Jesus, obviously. When you get to know your heroes, like I've gotten to know some of my heroes throughout the years, they're humans in process as well. Even Jose and Scott Ballard and Stephen Marshman, all these people that I reference as just being excellent leaders. Yes, they are great, incredible people, but God has had them on a super long journey to bring them to where they are today, and still they have room to grow because they are human. So cut yourself a little bit of slack. And third, and this is probably most importantly, uh, the, the paradigm for greatness in the kingdom of God is upside down from the world's way of looking at reality. The paradigm for greatness in the kingdom of God is upside down from the world's way of looking at reality. So think about this. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the meek. Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. So to Jesus, that's greatness. That's the way, in his words, to live life to the full. Now to Western kind of secular culture, where greatness is power and wealth and self-reliance, that's crazy, that's crazy talk, right? But again, when we follow Jesus, we need to lean into and embrace this paradox of leadership in the kingdom of God and live prophetically in a secular culture that sometimes celebrates the wrong stuff. Are you with me so far? Some of you. Are you with me? You guys with me? Okay, whoa, okay, good. Um, so Paul, who's arguably maybe one of the greatest New Testament leaders besides Jesus, he, um, he kind of expounds on this idea of greatness in the kingdom of God in his first letter to the Corinthians. In it, he writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that so much. Now, I don't know if you guys have like room and space here at this church to like get excited about what you're reading on the screen, but... Maybe if we all like let out an amen or something like that, that is incredible, right? That is an absolutely incredible amen, especially for guys like me. Now, um, this, what this scripture is saying is that weakness is the new strength. Weakness is the new strength. And Jesus is personifying what true greatness is for us by uh, subjecting himself to humiliation and dehumanization even, and even death on the cross. But the scripture says that that's not his weakness. That's actually his triumph. So in the language of Colossians, for example, he's saying he's making a public spectacle of the powers that be and opening the door for you to be forgiven of sin and accepted in the family of God, right? This is a brand new day and so exciting. And it's all as a result of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So the cross gives us this new paradigm for greatness, and that should 
inform or give shape to the way that we lead. God uses weak and foolish and lowly things to advance his kingdom agenda. I love that. So, so awesome. So baked into this little teaching on weakness, there is, I think, like a word of caution and also a word of hope. So uh, first, the word of caution. If you are, like, uh, let's say, magna cum laude, or you are the valedictorian or whatever, you are a powerful person, you're an intellectual, or you're well-connected, or you're successful by the world's standards, or you're an influencer, or you're wealthy, you haven't done anything wrong, you're not sinning, of course not, but be careful. Uh, Don't believe your own hype, as they say, right? That stuff by itself does not make you great in the kingdom. You need to actually practice humility and sobriety. You need to practice what it means to become the greatest servant. Now, if that is you, um, I would recommend taking out one of your elders or one of your pastors for lunch or coffee or something like that. Because in my mind, your leaders are absolutely nailing it at this. So that's the caution. But the word of hope is this. If you feel like maybe you're the middle of, of, of the curve or that you're ordinary, God wants to take your brokenness, your weakness, your foolishness, and he wants to express his power through it. So at the very end of Paul's letter to the, to, uh, to the Corinthians, he has one more step that he takes on this. He's actually writing about himself, who himself, he was a, like a rising star, like a prodigy of sorts. But he writes this at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Love that so, so much. Weakness is the new strength. Now, I don't think that you're going to hear that at like a Tony Robbins event or something like that, right? Or whoever the like pop level leadership guru of the decade is. Because our culture has a hard time with looking at weakness and strength this way. Um, Here's why I think our culture has a hard time with this. We are guarded, generally speaking, we are guarded and closed down when it comes to our weakness, We're often uh, drawn towards things and behaviors uh, uh, that distract us from the unpleasant areas of our interior lives. I'm not saying that to shame anyone, no guilt or or anything at all, because I actually can, uh, this can be true of me as well. So, So I think when we are guarded, or since we are guarded as a culture about our weaknesses, when it comes to leading other people, when it comes to our leadership, we focus on the good that we have to offer. We focus on the strong, successful parts of our lives. And again, that's not all wrong. But when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it kind of twists us up a little bit. And I think this is how we tend to read 2 Corinthians. We read it like this, like I have strengths. And I have weaknesses. It's kind of a mixed bag. And God still kind of uses me anyways. But it's my contention that that is just the secular story with a little bit of Jesus kind of sprinkled into the mix. But what Paul is saying is actually something pretty different from that. He's saying, I asked God to remove my weaknesses. But God said no. Because he wanted to express his power through my weakness. 
So now I boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then the power of Jesus rests on me, right? We didn't even read this part of it, but, um, but Paul is basing all of his apostolic authority on this issue. He's saying that, that you can follow me, follow me because I am weak, but when I am weak, then I am strong. So if you're taking notes, here is kind of your first takeaway, I guess. Being empowered by Jesus in leadership means embracing my weaknesses, not running from it. Embracing my weaknesses, not running from it. Welcome to church, everybody. Wow, this is some good stuff. Now, I hope what you're thinking when you hear that is, well, Tell me more, because we could all kind of file up here and tell stories of all kinds of Christian leaders, what we might think of as great leaders, who, where their weaknesses was their downfall. Their, their weaknesses actually torpedoed their ministry or torpedoed their leadership. And some of you are here today probably like the victims of some bad leadership or some poor leaders, and you might still be kind of dealing with uh, the, the fallout of that or, or whatever. And unfortunately, that's a story that we, we know all too well because we've seen it left and right. And of course, Jesus and Paul, they understand this part of it too. So it's not foreign to the scriptures. So I guess what I want to say is that that doesn't have to be your story. I think what the story of the scriptures is trying to tell us is that we all have weaknesses. And for some of us, it derails uh, our lives and our leadership potential. But for others, God's power is made perfect in us. So I think the difference between good and bad leadership comes down to how you deal with your weaknesses. And that's what I want to talk about today. Maybe the best place to see this in scripture is from the life of King David. It's one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible from the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So why don't you turn with me to 1st Samuel chapter 16. 1st Samuel chapter 16. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. So if you're familiar with the story, um, you know that David was anointed king over Israel during the fallout of King Saul's leadership, right? His weakness had kind of gotten the better of him. So here's kind of how the story goes. Saul sinned and he was uh, impatient with Samuel and disobeyed God. And so instead of accepting his responsibility and actually confessing his sin, he shifts blame and, and starts making excuses for why he did what he did. And that becomes extremely important here in just a couple minutes. So tuck that away and keep that with you. Um, because of that, God tells the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem where he's going to reveal to Saul, or excuse me, reveal to Samuel who he intends to replace Saul with. So we're picking up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 3. Um, invite Jesse, this is God speaking to Samuel about Jesse, the father of David. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. But Samuel, Samuel did what the Lord had said. Let's skip down to verse 5. Now when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's right. Then Jesse and Samuel, they take a look at the rest of David's sons. Let's skip down to verse 11. So then he asked Jesse, that's Samuel, 
are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, and he is tending the sheep. So Samuel said, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. When I read that, I just think of Nate Kupish, but that's just me. (laughs) So then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. All right, so let's stop there for just a second. Again, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you can probably see this trend that's emerging. God is using the most unlikely of characters to carry on his work in the world. First, you have Abraham, who's this older man who's childless. And then you have Joseph, who's the 11th of 12 brothers. You have Moses, who's this man in exile in Gideon. And now we have David. So this is a trend that God is doing. He's not looking at outward appearances. He's looking at the heart. And he's using those people to advance his kingdom agenda. And that, I think, has got to be the first characteristic of David's leadership. He had an undivided heart for the Lord. He did. He had an undivided heart for the Lord. And I think that should give us a lot of hope, especially if you're like me and kind of feel maybe the middle of the curve or whatever at best. When it comes to your leadership, you cannot necessarily control your talent or your natural ability necessarily. And sure, you can get better at the things that you do, but you can cultivate a passion for God. You can do that. Each and every one of us here today can cultivate a passion for God. And one of my, one of my favorite psalms, for example, is Psalm chapter 27. Uh, and this is David, and he's basically at death's door. He's on the brink of destruction or whatever. And he's singing out, no holds barred. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this only will I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And that's the kind of solidarity, I think. That is the kind of solidarity you want in your discipleship to Jesus and your affection to the Lord. You want to enjoy God and seek him with that kind of determination when nothing else matters or nothing matters more than experiencing the goodness of God, right? That is what you get in King David. So, um, where I come from, I come from Bend, uh, like, I, like I mentioned before, Bend, Oregon. And I love it over there. It's beautiful. In fact, you should come join us over there every now and again. So come say hi. We'd love to see you over on the sunny side of the mountain. Um, but Bend is this very like, image-driven culture. And by that, what I mean is that we're driven by a craving to impress each other. We're living off of the approval of others. We're working to kind of prove our worth by all of these, what I would call like superficial metrics or whatever. But when you cultivate a love for Jesus above everything else, you're not basing your self-worth on what other people say or think about you. And that's important for your leadership. You can't be driven by the whims of the people around you. You're actually living from a deep sense of acceptance by God. And you're safe in the family of God. And you're secure in who he says that you are. So you're not driven by um, the opinions of others necessarily. And when you're a leader with this kind of an undivided heart towards God, it changes more than just what you think about Jesus, although that by itself is totally worth it. But it, it changes how you see yourself in the world. 
And that's important too. It changes how you see yourself in the world. And that's a critical perspective if we're going to partner with God in advancing his kingdom agenda in a secular culture like ours. It's to be, have this perspective of who God is and who I am in relation to him and in his world that he is king of. And David is that kind of leader. Yahweh calls him famously a man after my own heart. And there's an occasion, you're probably familiar with the story, where he's the commander of the army, army like the general or something, and he's dancing and worshiping shamelessly um, for God in front of all of his troops, right? So this is a solidarity of heart. He knows who he is. He's worshiping God above all else. He sees himself as a follower of Yahweh first and a leader second, and that is so important when it comes to being God's kind of leader. Okay, so that's the good side of David's character. But let's fast forward, let's say, I don't know, 30 or so years in the story. David is no longer just a shepherd boy. Now he has kind of taken off like a rocket ship by any metric or standard. He is wildly successful. He's now the king. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And by and large, he's been really faithful. He's been really faithful to God. So we haven't really seen uh, David's weakness, or at least only in bits and pieces. But then comes this fateful day, seemingly out of character and out of nowhere for David, when he spots Bathsheba. You guys know the story, right? Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, who's one of David's soldiers and mighty men. And there Bathsheba is. She's bathing on her roof. So it's kind of a rated M for mature kind of story, so I'm not going to get into all of the crazy details, but essentially he sends his staff to go and get her. He goes and he, uh, he sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant, and he tries to cover up the fact that he's the father, and when that plan fails, he hatches a new scheme to actually have her husband Uriah killed, and it works. Sadly, it works. And a messenger from the battle line when Uriah is killed comes back and tells him about it. He says, you remember Uriah, the man who's served you faithfully all these years? Yeah, he's dead. And does anybody know how David responds? He says, yeah, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. This is nuts. This is crazy, right? He's not even ashamed. He's not even repentant. He doesn't seem bothered by what's happened at his hand right? This is nuts. So some of you, like I said, some of you walked in here this morning feeling inadequate to become a good leader, good Christian leader. How are you feeling now? Hopefully a little bit better about yourself, right? Um, Yeah, this is a huge, huge deal. We try and sanitize the story or whatever, but scripture tells it for what it really is. Talk about weakness. This is a brutal, evil, methodically planned out sin. And the last king, remember Saul, man, he got thrown out for being impatient and offering a sacrifice instead of Samuel. So relatively small sin by comparison. So what is God going to do with David? He's going to be thrown out as well, right? There's no possible way that he can keep on going as king with this kind of sin. Except that's not the story at all. And this is where redemption comes in, and it's fantastic. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1. We're going to read just a couple of verses where this, uh, where it's kind of the crescendo in, in the story of David's life here. Second Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to, Nathan was a prophet, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, he gives him this metaphor, this analogy, one rich and the other poor. 
And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children, shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. All right, this is where it gets good. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. And your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of that had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the, the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is heavy, heavy um, word of rebuke and correction. Let's look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Okay, this is an insane story. Let's stop there for a moment. This is amazing. God is forgiving, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. David confesses his sin and God forgives him. There's no more cover-up, there's no more lying, there's no more avoiding the ugly truth beneath the surface. He confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. And that, you guys, is the key difference between Saul's leadership and David's leadership. When confronted with his sin, Saul, he blame-shifted. And he made excuses for why he did what he did. But David repented. He, he asked for forgiveness and he was sincere in that. I think that has to be the second characteristic of David's leadership. Genuine repentance after moral failure. It was so much more than just saying, I'm sorry. We're going to kind of peel back the layers here together. Genuine repentance after moral failure. So uh, I think, first off, I think you really have to give Nathan the prophet Nathan, a lot of credit here. He called David out on the carpet. I mean, he really lays into him, right? Doesn't hold anything back, which if you've ever con confronted somebody about buried sin, you know that that takes a lot of guts. But the stakes were even higher, I think, for Nathan because um, David was the king, right? What, what would you expect to have happened if someone confronts the king and accuses the king like that? At very, at very best, it's like a bunch of angry tweets, right? That's, that's, that's coming for sure. Uh, but more likely, though, it's, it's death. It's death. And judging by the cover story and the cover-up and everything that David had did up until this point, I'm sure that Nathan is halfway expecting that this is going to be the last thing he does before David takes his life. But what does David do instead? He doesn't do that, does he? He's broken. He owns his responsibility. He owns his guilt. And he confesses his sin. And this is what's shocking about this interaction. David 
practices submission to Nathan. He practices submission to Nathan. I don't think submission was a part of the king's playbook back in 1000 BCE, right? This is a whole new level of humility that originates from the heart of David. David is showing a tremendous amount of humility here. He's saying, yes, of course I'm the king. Yes, of course I could have Nathan killed. That's my prerogative as king. But he's right, and I have sinned, and he repents for that. So he saw Nathan's message as God's gift to him for what it was. That was God's gift to him, a gift of mercy. It was a warning that David actually listened to and he heard. Which, by the way, I just think that strong leaders are this way. Strong leaders practice mutual submission with their teams and with the people they lead. So if you're a strong leader, for example, you're going to be hopefully really approachable. where People can come to you and talk to you about things. You're also going to be uh, open and vulnerable, real. Acknowledge your weaknesses. Uh, Strong leaders listen well to their teams, right? Your team may be God's way of holding up a mirror to your character and refining you as a leader. That's oftentimes what teams are. That's what my team has been for me, helping me see where my weaknesses are and showing me how to grow. I was reading an article on leadership not too long ago. It was talking about this tool. I think it's a great tool. It's also kind of a scary tool to help you get good feedback from your team. So try this this week and let me know how it goes. Um, ask your wife or your husband or your family or the people you work with or your, com- your church community or your uh, 26 West community. What's the one thing you think I don't want to hear? What's the one thing you think I don't want to hear? If you have the courage to ask those kinds of questions of the people around you, the people you're leading, and if you're willing to humbly receive their answer, I think, number one, you're going to earn the respect of your, of your team, your people. They're going to know that you're real, approachable, and you're authentic. But they're also going to, you're also going to receive the gift that God is trying to give you by putting a team around you to hold up a mirror to show you areas you can grow. So David's response is this beautiful picture, I think, of, uh, of, of submission to people that he was over. But he's also practicing what I'm going to call vulnerability. He's authentic about his brokenness. He's not guarded like we're t- we tend to be as humans. He's not guarded and closed down about his weaknesses anymore. He's not distracting himself from the reality of what happened and what's gone on in his heart. He's actually honest. He's real. He's authentic about his reality and his weakness. So vulnerability... Uh, about our weakness, I think it's, it is an expression of trust. It's an expression of trust in God. David sings about this later in Psalm 51, which Psalm 51 is that famous psalm that he writes uh, as a response to Nathan's kind of uh, confrontation of David. So it's in the aftermath of everything that's gone on, David writes uh, this psalm, Psalm 51. And I just want to read a couple verses for you. Um, 51, 10, and 11. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I love that. He's literally, he's throwing himself before God. He's trusting in him as the one who's truly able to redeem him and to forgive him. And that's what vulnerability is all about. It's not about retaining your own dignity. It's not about trying to pull yourself up and be self-reliant. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's about saying yes to God. And it's about trusting in him and in his redemption. And that is the story of the Bible. So this story about David isn't just about his weakness, although it is about that. 
It's about David's response to his weakness. It's about how he deals with his weakness. I think that that completely defines his legacy as a leader. How he responds to his brokenness and weakness is what defines David as a leader. I think the same is true of us. Genuine repentance, mutual submission, vulnerability with one another as trust in Yahweh. These are all things that are markers, I think, of a good, uh, mature leader in the Lord. Now, fortunately for us, um, most of us probably haven't gone as far as David went down his kind of spiral into brokenness and weakness. Let's hope not. But we do each have our own weakness or weaknesses, and we can still lead from them. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who is this fantastic author from the 20th century, wrote a book on Christian leadership called In the Name of Jesus. And I highly recommend you pick it up and take a look at it. It'll probably take you less than a day to read, although you can meditate on it for weeks. In it, he writes this. I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her vulnerable self and to enter into, the, into a deeper solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and bring the light of Jesus there. Come on, that is good. In other words, what he's saying is that a Christian leader is one who has traveled to all of the in, un, unpleasant places in the interior of their lives that are kind of tragically enforced by our culture as well and leads from that place of vulnerability, brokenness, and honesty. And when you do that, you're going to be able to lead people towards freedom in Christ. You're going to be able to help other people see what's possible when they trust in Jesus and when they're vulnerable and when they go to the Lord with their weaknesses, actually facing them, not suppressing them, not allowing them to run ragged, but to actually allow the, the, the weaknesses of, uh, in, in, our, in our personality to come to the surface so that God can root them out and truly change us. That's one of our goals as a, as a leader, is to not just get the outcomes that we want to get out from them, but one of the goals of a leader is to really see that person or your team become who God has created them to be. And when you model this kind of leadership like David, that's exactly what happens. So, uh, I probably shouldn't be able to say all of that without sharing with you at least some of my weaknesses, right? Um, and we could probably go for the rest of the day talking about that because, like I say, there are, are many. But, um, but I won't. I'm just going to share with you one story or one weakness that God has been working on me lately. Does that sound all right? Awesome. So um, up until a couple of years ago, um, I think I was a really textbook case of what happens when you suppress your negative emotions. This is just kind of how I grew up. My dad's motto to us was stop feeling sorry for yourself. And he's a really sweet guy, an amazing guy, and that's actually pretty good advice. But there comes a time where you need to not actually just suppress what you're feeling, but to actually express what you're feeling. Um, and I was just one that constantly pushed those negative emotions to the side. And that ended up costing me something pretty severe in the last couple of years. So um, three and a half years ago, uh, my wife Grace, who couldn't be here today, but she says sends her love, she uh, got pregnant with uh, our, twin, our twin daughters, Hope and Brielle. And uh, they're just so sweet, um, amazing little girls. And um, we found out when we were pregnant with them that one of them, Hope, was really sick. And she had this uh, genetic syndrome 
that made it really possible that she would not make it to full term and that she would most likely um, cause the death of her sister as well. So this is the worst news that you can possibly hear as a parent. So the recommendation to us was that we abort hope in order to save Brielle. And I talk about hard things in life a lot, but when I was going through that, there was just nothing that could comfort me. There was nothing to give us any kind of consolation. Um, but fortunately for us, they, they actually did really well. They made it to full term against all odds. And then unexpectedly, right as we were about to give birth at 35 weeks, both of them suddenly passed away. And I could go on and on for days about what God has done in our story since losing Hope and Brielle. And it was, it's been a crazy journey, but God has been present through it all. And in fact, I remember the day that it happened, the Lord spoke over us this word from the Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he really was. We felt his presence in a really powerful, profound way. But pretty soon I clicked into this kind of mode of caring for my wife and daughter. I wanted to be a strong husband. I wanted to be a strong father to my daughter, firstborn, who was three at the time. And so um, I just began to be their shoulder to cry on. And I kind of buried and suppressed all of my negative emotions. And there was a few times where I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to just express to him my hurt and my pain in an unfiltered way, but I didn't. And I held those things in because again, I wanted to be strong for the people around me. And um, I was pastoring at the time, we hadn't quite launched Riverbend, but at the time I was pastoring a group of students. And I wanted everyone to see that, you know, losing our girls hadn't cost us our faith in Jesus. And that's true, it, it really hadn't. But in that process, I shortchanged myself on real grief. I shortchanged myself on what it looks like to really process loss. And to, to make matters way, way worse, I am kind of like a workaholic of, of sorts. And so um, I just threw myself into more work as a way to kind of cope with my brokenness and a way to distract from my weakness. And so it's more of this kind of stuff, kingdom work, Bible study, pastoring people, caring for people, all good stuff. But I was suppressing what God really wanted to do in my life. And I am normally a pretty empathetic person, but uh, over time I grew really numb. I grew numb to the people around me. I grew numb to, in my relationship to the Lord. I was um, not feeling much of anything, good or bad. I was just kind of a shell of a human being. And right around this time, we were planting the church that I'm now the pastor of, and things are going really well. They had been. You guys have been praying for us and stuff like that. So it's not even that, but it's just I knew deep down that I was costing me something on a human level to not feel and to not express what was truly going on in my heart at the time. And this is a character flaw. This is a serious character flaw that I have as a human and as a leader. And it had been in my life 
since probably before I could even recall. But I had always found a way to just kind of make it make do. But when it came to Hope and Brielle, when it came to our story, I knew that that wouldn't work any longer because I was ceasing to function well and I wasn't really myself. So in an act of like desperation, in an act of just total depression, I kind of fell into a practice from the way of Jesus called silence and solitude. And I wouldn't have known what to call it back then. If anything, I probably would have called it like my angry drives with God. Because I was just in my car, going nowhere really, and just angry, just upset. That was the one emotion that I knew was there. And it took a ton of time, but I began expressing and allowing the things that I had pushed down for so long to come rising to the surface. I began to feel again, and it wasn't pretty. I wouldn't share with you everything that I prayed to God because I like you and I hope I get to come back. But over time, God began to do a deep work of change in my heart. A deep work of change in my heart. And I can't point to a specific moment or even a specific week, really, where everything changed. But I can say that I have learned to hear the voice of God in the silence. I'm here. Your pain is real. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. And I learned to to finally receive the promises that I had learned from the scriptures my entire life. I finally learned how to let them go deep into my soul to receive I am a child of God I am not what I do I'm not what other people say or think about me I am who God says that I am and I'm still very much in process to put it mildly the more I press into silence and solitude the more I'm discovering this new place of freedom I'm not running away from my pain anymore. I'm not burying it. I'm not distracting myself from it by by filling my life with work or just things. I'm actually learning to quiet myself, to stop moving for a moment, to embrace my weakness, to take it to Jesus. And he has proven himself faithful to remove that from me, to give me grace upon grace. Being alone in the quiet with God has been the defining practice of healing and transformation and change for me. And opening up about that has completely changed how I lead and it's completely changed the the impacts of my leadership in our church. Before this, it wasn't that I wasn't wanting to be vulnerable, like I was being dishonest about who I really am, but I was just totally blind to it. It was my shadow. This was something that I wasn't paying attention to. Now, I hope that it's true, that I'm an open book, that I am vulnerable with the people around me, that people know my weakness, can see it, and actually be encouraged by it. And now I've been convinced that when we encounter the power of the presence of God, that is what deeply changes us. So as I've been processing this as a human being who's also a pastor responsible for leading a bunch of people, I've found that there's something that's beginning to break loose in our community at our church. People are feeling a little bit more free. 
to face their challenges, to face their weaknesses, to have the courage to sit in what God has called them to sit in, to not push things to the side, but allow them to come to the surface because God always makes good on his promise. God always makes good on his promise. When I am weak, then I am strong. So you may, again, be the one who's here today feeling inadequate to be a good, mature Christian leader, whatever. But I think what God would have to say to you today is that you are not what other people say about you. You are not what you produce. You are not what you do for work. You are first and foremost a child of God. And who Jesus says you are is the most important thing about you. The most, the truest thing about you is who God says that you are. So what makes you a great leader in the kingdom is not the superficial metrics of success that are held up by our secular culture, but it's who you are becoming under the influence of Jesus's presence. You are being changed, you are being transformed. God is taking your weakness and he's actually demonstrating his power through it. You are not what you do. These superficial metrics only have so much to play. What's truest about you is you are a child of God and it's who you are becoming under the influence of his presence. Our response to Jesus is to cultivate first and foremost a love for him above everything else. That is our response. You are first a child of God. You are first a follower of Yahweh. And you're a leader, a broken, human, weak leader. But God always makes good. He always makes good on his promise. When you are weak, then he is strong. Let's respond by standing and praying together. And then we're gonna move into a time of worship as well. So why don't you stand to your feet and let's just declare together and let's respond together who God is. Father, I just wanna say thank you for you. Thank you that there is such a thing as perfection and that's you. But here we are in your presence, 26 West Church. And maybe some of us here in the room have been kind of pushing to the side the things that you've been wanting to bring up for a while. Maybe we distract, or maybe that's just like the frenetic pace of life is keeping us from dealing with the issues that you really wanna deal with in our hearts and in the interior of our lives that no one else sees. We thank you for the example of David that shows us what meekness, what humility looks like, what great leadership looks like first a heart, an undivided heart for you, and then genuine repentance. I just pray for my friends that right now, God, you would do the deep work of change in their life. That you would begin the work, or if they're already on the journey, that you would continue that journey. I'm just feeling the Spirit say as we pray, Somebody needs to receive their new identity today. That identity is that you are a child of God. You are a child. 
Can we say that together? Can we say, I'm a child of God together on the count of three? One, two, three. I'm a child of God. You are a child of God. Our response, 26 West, is to cultivate a love for him above everything else. So this is that, this is that moment that you can, we're going to create a little bit of space up here to sing and to pray and to come to the tables, receive the bread and the cup. Just don't let this moment go by. The power of the presence of God is right here in this room with you, in you. You can encounter him. So take this moment to be real before him, laid bare before him, and to receive the promise from him. You are loved by him. You're loved by us. You're loved by your Riverbend family. And Jesus, we love you.